Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In the year 1603, a 13-year-old French shepherd boy called Jean Grenier tried to impress three teenage cowgirls by telling them he had a magic wolf skin that turned him into a wolf. Soon Jean was hauled before the local judges on trial for being a werewolf who had killed a number of babies, children and livestock in the region. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in this edition of Not Just the Tudors, I'm joined by Dr. Jan Mackelson to find out more about this tragic case, one that helps us understand how children and teenagers in the age of witch trials drew on magic and myths to help them make sense of their own often tragic lives. I'm very excited to have on the show today Dr. Jan Michelson, who is Senior Lecturer in Early Modern History at Cardiff University. Jan got his DPhil from Oriel College, Oxford. He taught at Balliol and New Colleges, Oxford, before joining Cardiff. He's a Fellow of the Royal Historical Society and has been the recipient of numerous scholarships and fellowships. And he's the author of a book about the Jesuit Martin del Rio, who is one of the most famous demonologists of the period. And it was listed as one of History Today's books of 2015. And right now he's writing a book about the witch hunt of 1609 in the French Basque country. But today we're going to be talking about a really interesting case that Jan has come across in his research and written about. And we're going to be talking about a teenage werewolf from 1603. Jan, how did you come across this case? Well, thanks so much, Susanna, for having me. It's really, really cool to be talking about this case. It's one of my favourite discoveries in the archives. It's a case that was really famous at the time. Three different people wrote about it. And I discovered a new source. So two of them I was already aware of. And then I came across a third one. And then I realized some discrepancies between the three sources. And I realized that they were all working from the original trial documents, which sadly have been lost. So then when I found this third new source, I realized, well, what if I put them all together and line them up paragraph by paragraph? And then I realized one source mentioned certain details and other sources mentioned other details. And how putting them together actually got me closer to the original trial testimony than anyone has ever gotten. And that made me read it more carefully and interpret the trial in greater detail. And the most exciting thing about it is 
the werewolf in question, Jean Grenier, he was only 13 years old. And that makes him very likely the youngest person ever accused of being a werewolf in history. So it just seems like it would be a very good topic to write an article on. Absolutely. Many people listening will not know that people were actually accused of being werewolves in history. So the whole idea about werewolves, is that a common idea in Europe that people are accused of being werewolves? Well, it's much rarer than witchcraft. So we think that there were between 40 and 50,000 trials for witchcraft across early modern Europe. And the number for werewolf trials is probably as low as 300. And the cases are much more localised. Basically, you need wolves to have werewolves, because if there are no wolf attacks, there is nothing to connect a werewolf attack to. So that's the main reason why there are no werewolves in early modern England, why there are no Tudor werewolves. But in cases, especially in mountainous areas, especially in areas like the Alps, there's an area called Franche-Comté, which is now part of France, but it's immediately to the west of Switzerland, which is probably werewolf central, as it were. There, there were quite a few werewolf cases. And this case isn't in Werewolf Central, it's a little further south. So tell me about where this case comes from. So this case comes from just outside Bordeaux. So it's about 50 miles inland from Bordeaux in the Dordogne region of France. But it was also an area at the time that was suffering from many, many wolf attacks. And I think this is the thing where we might be useful to compare witchcraft and werewolves, because the way witchcraft usually works, if something bad happens to a person, you have a sheep or a cow who passes away or a child falls ill and you think as an ordinary early modern villager, like, hmm, maybe a witch is responsible. But with werewolves, it's quite clear when there is a wolf involved because the wolf actually attacks you or your family. So the trial record then really brings out how vicious these wolves had gotten. There are a number of cases of toddlers being killed and eaten by wolves in this region. So there's one story of an infant who was taken by a wolf out of his crib. So the wolf got into a home, picked up the boy from a crib, taken it away and eaten it behind a hedge. And all of these wolf attacks were then later attributed to Jean Grenier, this young teenager. It's extraordinary, isn't it, to think about the level of threat that people lived with. We think over the last year, going through a pandemic, we've had a high threat level. But if you're going to put yourself in the early 17th century, not only do you have pandemics, epidemics of various sorts and the threat of hunger and harvests failing, You've also got that your child might be stolen out of its crib by a werewolf or by a wolf for a stop. So let's go back to those sources, because I love the fact that you have literally triangulated the sources so they can corroborate each other and that you can reconstruct these lost trial records. So perhaps we could talk about each of those three so we have an idea of where you're getting information and then we can come to Jean Renier, the teenage werewolf. My main way in was a Bordeaux judge called Pierre de Langre. And Pierre de Lancre is well known to witchcraft historians because he was the principal judge in the witch hunt of the French Basque country in 1609. And he was also interested in all the strange things surrounding witchcraft. So he was particularly fascinated about the witch's Sabbath, the secret gathering of witches at night. He was fascinated by demonic flight, the idea that witches 
were flying to the Sabbath. But he was also very interested in the idea of transformation, the idea that human beings could be transformed into other animals. So we see this in witchcraft cases more often. So you have cases, for instance, of witches who transform themselves into mice and then go through keyholes and that sort of thing. But wolves are, of course, like a specific case. So in some sense, it sort of like helps to think of werewolves as a subset of witches. And in other instances, they're also quite separate. But so Pierre de Lancre coming back from conducting his witch hunt in the Basque country, he actually is really fascinated about the 1603 case, which he originally had not been involved in, even though it was tried in Bordeaux, but he was not a member of the panel that was trying that case. So he goes off to actually interview Jean Grenier, the teen wolf, and then he also obtains the original trial records. So he was the original first source for me, but people already knew about that source. One thing to say about him is not just that he's involved in the witch hunt as well, though, in French Basque. That's one of the most notorious witch hunts in Europe, isn't it? So he's one of the two judges of that. If you think about the character of the person we're getting this information from, he's someone who's predisposed (laughs) to find witches, would you say, and perhaps werewolves? Oh, yes, definitely. One of the things that he does in the Basque country, when he sort of interrogates his teenage witnesses, he scrutinises their bodies for signs of witchcraft. And he does the same with Jean Grenier when he meets Jean Grenier. He comments on the fact that he has dark blackened teeth, excellent for consuming small children. It almost sounds like Red Riding Hood. He has big teeth and he has his fingernails that are blackened and excellent for running. Yes, most certainly. Pierre de Lanca would be completely disposed to believing in the reality of werewolves. There is also a sense when you read his view that he is actually quite disappointed that the court decided to sentence him to life in prison, Grenier, on account of his age, rather than have him executed. Delancre's view would have been that it would have been much better to have had this 13-year-old boy executed. So that's Delancre, but you've got two other sources as well. What are those? The other two are a bit less interesting as Delancre, and we know a lot less about the authors. So the second one is a version of the verdict as it exists in manuscripts in the Bibliothèque Nationale, the National Library in Paris. And that version of the verdict contains the opening summary of the 12 documents of what's happening. And then the third one, that's the one that I found, exists in a very dry legal document. It's a book about Roman law and how Roman law has been adopted by French lawyers and used by French lawyers. And this author decides to illustrate his arguments about Roman law with cases from the Bordeaux Parlement. So he decides to excerpt aspects of the trial documents relating to the Grenier trial. So no one, I think, would think to look for werewolves in a text as boring as that. And to be honest, I would not have thought to look for it either, except that there is this wonderful thing now these days called Google Books. And sometimes when you type in search terms, odd results come up. And this was how I found it. It was complete happenstance. So like that's how the best discoveries are made by accident, stumble across something. Yeah, when you look for something, you cannot find it. But when you're not looking and you're just literally, it's just right in front of you. So that's sort of what happened there with that third source. And putting them together revealed how there were all sorts of like details, colorful details like the color of a dog that Grenier ate 
supposedly as a werewolf, but also telling details that help us back the story further. It says something about the role of technology in research, that you were able to find it that way. And I thank you for going through that boring document so we don't have to, but we get to get this wonderful story. So enough preamble. We need to know now about the teenage werewolf you found. So tell us about Jean Grenier. What do you know about him? It all starts in A1603 and Jean Grenier is a shepherd boy. He left home in February under rather miserable circumstances and he found employment, if that's the right word, with a local farmer to guard some sheep. And this is, as I mentioned already, in the context of widespread wolf attacks. And then he comes across three girls, cow herds, that are probably a bit older than him. Well, one of them is 18, another is 13, so the same age as he is, and then we don't actually know the age or the name of the third girl. And these three girls are talking about wolves, and werewolves, very logically, because one of them had been attacked by one of the wolves just a few weeks earlier, and she still had scars on her face to show for that. And she had managed to hit the wolf with her staff, and the wolf stepped back and sat on his hind legs and stared at her furiously, according to her testimony, and then that gave her the opportunity to make her escape and for her cows to escape with her. So as the three girls are talking, Grenier arrives on the scene, And he seeks to try and impress them and try and insert himself into this conversation. And when he realizes that talking about wolves, he says, it's sort of like, oh, I run with the wolves. And the girls look at him very skeptically. So at the end of it, he tells them, apparently as a way of impressing them, that he's a werewolf and that there is this secret dark house in the forest where a certain evil lord lives, who has given him a wolf skin, and that this wolf skin allows him to transform into a wolf. And very sensibly, these three girls report Grenier to the local authorities, and they decide to take him in. And then under some pressure of interrogation, he does indeed confess to being a teen wolf. And he also says that his father, Pierre Grenier, the father he'd fallen out with, was also a wolf and that they've been running as wolves together for a number of years. So this is a fascinating story. And it's extraordinary that actually it comes out of teenage bravado, really. But there's information about Grenier in terms of, I guess, what we'd call his disability status. What people say about Grenier, what does he look like? How are people describing him at the time? All the accounts sort of say that everyone thought he was rather slow for his age. The judges in Bordeaux thought that he had the mental capacity of an 8 to 10-year-old rather than a 13-year-old. And his father says some really scathing things about how gullible and stupid his son is. But of course, he would do that because his son had just accused him of being a werewolf. There's also references to how he was short and small for his age. So it does sort of seem that this sort of bravado also stems from maybe a sort of a childlike attitudes, a certain amount of overcompensating, perhaps. Like, please, hey, notice me. It is also a story of... This 13-year-old boy trying to get the attention of an 18-year-old girl, he goes up to these girls and apparently he says to them, which of the three of you is 
the prettiest because whoever is the prettiest I would like to marry yeah so they're not particularly interested in that so he also has a very childlike attitude towards relationships I would say and that stems partly from his own background his mother had passed away and his father had remarried but his stepmother had also left presumably to keep her claim on a property that she owned alive so he was raised by a father who beat him regularly. The reason why he left home in February was because he'd been cooking a piece of bacon during Lent when Christians traditionally are not allowed to eat meat. And this was a piece of bacon that had been given to him by a neighbour and he was cooking it for him and for a younger brother about whom we know nothing. And his father was so upset that he beat his son. And as a result of that encounter, his son decided to leave home at age 14 and live on the streets. Well, if you can call streets when we're talking about the countryside. And it's a few weeks later, he gets taken in by this farmer who takes pity on him and who lets him guard his sheep. It's interesting, isn't it? It's very dangerous to try and make diagnoses over 400 years. But I'm struck by the fact that you write that Delancre had noted that Jean struggled with simple things, which were common sense. And this approach to the girls, the sort of lack of guile, but also perhaps the lack of perception in saying, which of you is the prettiest because I'm going to marry you? One would think he could have reached the judgment himself. But the innocence of the approach is really notable. And then that he's been beaten so severely that he leaves home at 13 and wanders for weeks before he finds employment makes sense that he's small, that he's malnourished, I guess, perhaps. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers and over on the Warfare Podcast, we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam 
was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected. And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. Anyway, so we've got this encounter with the girls and we've got this story. They give their witness statements. What else do they say that he has boasted about doing? Well, he talks a great deal about this wolf skin and the judges make a sustained effort to try and find this wolf skin as a material piece of evidence that proves that he is indeed a werewolf. And this might be the point to mention that werewolves were not magically transformed into werewolves at full moon. There are a number of things that we think about with werewolves that are later editions, 19th century inventions by Gothic novelists. So no transformation at full moon and no being transformed into a werewolf because you were bitten by a werewolf. These aspects are not there in any of the original werewolf trials of the 16th and 17th century. So the transformation in the case of Grenier apparently worked because he was given a magical wolf skin and then you only had to put that on whenever he sort of like felt tempted to eat a kid. That was enough for him to transform into a wolf. So that is one aspect of the story. I think another point sort of like to drag out because Grenier had been roaming the streets for a number of weeks, he had some prior knowledge of these wolf attacks. He'd been to various of the villages where they had happened and the local judges, they line up a number of confrontations where sort of like the parents of the children who got attacked and in some case literally eaten confront Grenier. And that's another way in which it makes sense that the testimony lines up when as a judge you say, well, you know, the father says that this happened. And so what do you say? And on your earlier point about it's incredibly difficult to get into the mental world of a 13-year-old's malnourished boy, but the fact that he continually accuses his father, even though he doesn't have to, and the fact that he also continuously insists that he is a teen wolf, that he never even tries to retract that accusation, I think are both really important facts. And they really show how a lot of this sort of fantasy also in my view, stems from his relationship with his father, the way that his father was in some respects a wolf towards him. But also it seems to me that a lot of the sexual undertones there seem to stem from his father's behaviour as well. So Garnier talks about how he and his father would go running as wolves together to find girls, and explicitly find girls. So that, I think, is significant. It's true that these judges can impose a very neat narrative, especially on a boy as innocent and childlike as Grenier. But at the same time, there are aspects that Grenier persists in that actually unsettle the judges and that they don't quite know what to make of it. And when the Bordeaux Parliament finally gets involved, they convict Grenier because he actually confessed so why not? <laughs> and they sent him to perpetual imprisonment in a nearby monastery. But they do acquit the father because there is no evidence aside from this boy's accusation. 
So it is fascinating, isn't it? Because you've alluded to this problem that historians have, which is when you're trying to deal with ordinary people who only appear to us in these moments of, as Foucault called it, this encounter with the powerful, you know, they suddenly appear out of the blue, out of the darkness of the historical sources, and there they are. And it's only at this moment they're meeting with their inquisitors or whatever. And of course, actually, we have to try and figure out how much we can get at the voice of these people and how much what we're hearing is the ventriloquist of the inquisitor and we're listening to that voice and also there are extra methodological difficulties I suppose when you're dealing with what we might imagine to be imaginary crimes <laughs> when you're talking about perhaps witchcraft or being a werewolf although I'm sure some people listening to this might object to that definition but there is a really interesting thing to wrestle with there and yet at the same time as you're saying that in this case we've got a confession I mean, how voluntary do you think that confession was? He confesses originally not to judges, right? He confesses to these three girls. <laughs> he doesn't say, I've made a demonic pact, which is what you would expect to happen if, you know, you were being interrogated and tortured by some judges. Like his version of going running with wolves seems originally more innocent and then sort of maybe slightly sort of more threatening. He also seems to use it as a way of voicing his own sexual aggression, telling Marguerite Poirier she is the 13-year-old girl who got attacked earlier by a wolf and would still had scars that he would have liked to have bitten her more. Like, it just sounds quite erotic to me. So there is a fundamental core there that the origins of this story stem from Canier's own imagination and his own fantasies. And we can hear traces of it because it's not the devil originally that gives him this magical wolf skin. It is this magical person living in a dark house in the forest that does that. And it's sort of like then the inquisitorial process that then transforms that into a more orthodox story. But then, as I said, then also other things like the fact that he accuses his father without prompting, without not having to do that, that also showed that even at that later stage, there are still aspects of the story that are from Granier and not just expectations of the local judges. And I think as a sort of added point, I would emphasize also the pressure of the local villages. A lot of this testimony that Grenier provided was in the presence of people who lost loved ones, who lost their children, and who, like in, in terribly traumatic experiences. I mean, I couldn't imagine what it must be like two weeks after your child has disappeared to find the remains of her body, as happened to this three-year-old girl. Like, it must have been just incredibly upsetting and distressing. And that's where the parallel with witchcraft becomes quite useful again, because that's also what witchcraft does. It provides meaning and it also gives closure or gives you a sense of agency. So like something bad has happened to you, but you can explain it and you can do something about it. And these were random wolf attacks. But by spinning all of these wolf attacks on this poor 13-year-old boy, you're all, well, okay, we have justice and all is right in the world. And that is another factor there that Grenier is testifying in front of not just judges, but the entire community. That's a really important point. Yes, thank you for making that. That's so true, because... As you say, closure and justice for those who've suffered it, and also then a sense of hope for those who don't want it to happen again to their children. Well, we've caught the werewolf now, so we don't have to worry anymore. We don't have to have the anxiety about wolf attacks because we've dealt with it. Yeah, that is a really good point. This is a problem with the sources. We don't quite know what happens to the region after the Guinea trial. Were there more wolf attacks? 
to your earlier point about how we get the sense of life for ordinary people in the early modern period was like only when they encountered the powerful, as it were. That's also definitely the case here. We know nothing about this entire community of La Roche other than this wolf attack. There are just no sources about this you know, small place. And yeah, one wonders if there were more wolf attacks, were they thinking, okay, did we get the white one? <laughs> Is there another werewolf? But we just don't know. It's so interesting, but also so frustrating to use legal sources like this, because it feels like you get a, just a tiny piece of light shed on this incredibly dark terrain. And then as soon as the trial ends, of course, things go dark again. And that's really rather frustrating sometimes as a historian. It certainly is. And how much of history is in the dark and that we can't get at it? Or how much of the past? And as historians, we try to capture those moments. Could I ask you a little bit more about the way we get at his fantasies and what he says about his father? Because that seems so fascinating that the idea that the two of them have been running with wolves together, running after girls. What else does he say? And what more can it tell us about Grenier's life if we can get at that? Well, the interesting thing is that when Jean Grenier accuses Father Pierre, his father then also gets the opportunity to confront his son. And the father says some really terrible things about just sort of like how stupid the boy is. And he even says that for an apple, he will tell you what you want. And that he's fun, you could make him confess that he had slept with all the women they mentioned to him. So those are the types of dismissive comments that on the one hand show how little the father thought of him, but also sort of points again toward the erotic undertones of these confessions. And then whenever these confrontations happen, Jean, the boy, retracts the accusation against his father, because I guess he cowers and is afraid of his dad. And then as soon as the father leaves, he goes to the judges and says, no, I was afraid of him and I stand by my accusation. And I was afraid that my dad might beat me and that's why I withdrew my accusation. So you can see the power dynamics there. On the one hand, I think that from Jean Grenier's perspective, running with his dad was a sort of bonding experience that he wished he had. And then on the other hand, there is a sense of aggression from his father, stemming from the fact that his father was, as it were, a wolf. It feels like the aggression that has been meted out to him, if he could make that into something positive that he and his dad have done together, then that somehow redeems his experiences for him, perhaps. Yeah. Trying to work on this material, I really felt that I was trying to embody Lindel Voper, a person who has been a mentor to both of us and who's done so much amazing close psychoanalytical reading of trial cases like this one. And there is certainly an element of speculation in what we're saying here. He returns to accusing his father. And then later, when he gets imprisoned in this monastery, his father you know, a few times tries to come and visit, and he never wants to see his dad. The relationship with his father is the key thing to trying to understand how this trial works and where these ideas and imaginations come from. And, and I think it's just as a sort of more broader point, it's really just fascinating to see how children and teenagers use their imagination and their fantasy to build witchcraft stories and in often with deadly consequences for themselves and, and also for their parents. In that sense, Jean Grenier is the youngest werewolf, but there are certainly other cases of teenagers or even just the youngest cases I've come across are 11, 12 years old of boys and girls who confess that they're witches to their contemporaries, so like two children their own age, who then tell their parents 
who then tell judges and get families into trouble that way. Witchcraft history has been an incredibly well-explored field, but maybe because it's so tragic and sad and methodologically challenging, it has been one of the few areas that has been very rarely explored and then definitely needs more attention, I'd say. That's fascinating. And it's true, actually, even for cases that people in the UK may have heard of the Pendle witch trials, which start with a young girl accusing herself of being a witch, but then also accusing members of her family for being part of that as well. And the other thing that strikes me is that Crenier, by his own confession, is this werewolf. And he's a boy. And of course, we think of witches primarily and indeed the statistics, as far as we have them, seems to suggest that primarily ace, maybe four-fifths of all those accused as witches were women. So what does it tell us about gender and witchcraft and werewolves and these magical beliefs? For witchcraft, the statistics vary region by region. But in England, 90% of those accused of witchcraft were women, and the same is true for Germany. The ratio is slightly different in France. There are more male witches in France than there are in other places. And by contrast, there are only 300 or so cases of werewolves, but the number of cases of female werewolves are just negligible. And I think I've come across one. And, And I think that tells us a great deal about when you put the two crimes next to each other because like what is a werewolf attack except for naked pure aggression and what is a witchcraft attack of course like none of these things exist so they existed in the imagination but what is a witchcraft attack except the weapon of someone who has no power like someone who couldn't confront you directly and who then had to resort to secret means attacking you behind your back and the fact that the naked aggression is a male crime and the secret stabbing behind your back crime is a female crime, overwhelmingly, in both cases, I think tells us a great deal about the gender dynamics behind these cases. And it might be a a new way into thinking about the gendering of witchcraft and the gendering of werewolves too, I guess. That's really fascinating, thinking about the nature of the crime. And perhaps as a boy, you'd much rather confess to being a werewolf than being a witch because it has that element of masculine aggression or power that's manifested in a male way. What happens to Jean Grenier? Well, so he gets imprisoned in his monastery in Bordeaux and he's still alive in 1610. So when Pierre de Lancre comes back from the Basque country and is interested in finding out more about sort of like this secret underworld of witches and all the magical things that they're able to do. And we know that Delancre visits Grenier in, I think, November 16th then. But then shortly after, we don't quite know when precisely, Grenier dies. And he would have then been only 20 or 21. And so, yeah, that's a sad end to the story. The monks seem to have taken, from what we can tell, fairly good care of him. He tells Delancre that he misses eating the meat of children and that girls' meat tastes better than boys' meat, but presumably gets fed other things. It's a sad story, although it could have been potentially much sadder still if he had been executed. And there's also a sense in which he might have been a tourist attraction, that Delancre may not have been the only person who went to see the werewolf and just to gape at, you know, his teeth and his fingernails and that sort of thing. So there is no happy end for Jean Grenier, I'm afraid. No, and it is very hauntingly sad that 
this confession, as you were saying earlier, came from the fact that he's trying to impress the girls. He's approached them talking probably quite seriously and genuinely, though they don't take it seriously, about marriage, that coming from this broken home and having escaped a violent father, he just wants a family of his own and instead gets convicted as a werewolf. Yeah, it is just really, really sad how there are sexual fantasies there too, of course, but there's also a, a strange sense of innocence and a naivete in what Jean Grenier did. It's hard to really see how else you could explain his behaviour towards those three girls. And it all seems to just stem from the fact that he comes from a broken home and desperately wants a family of his own. Like, you know, he is essentially proposing marriage to these three girls. Uh, it is really sad and it also just makes you think sometimes how anyone's life can just suddenly change on the turn of a dime right Jan thank you so much for sharing this case with us it's been absolutely fascinating and a real deep dive into the psychologies and the sort of realities of life for people in the very early 17th century and I'm so grateful to you for talking to us about this fascinating story been listening to not just the Tudors from History Hit. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.